Welcome to today's VJ Hemont podcast. Today, we'll hear about the latest clinical updates on targeted therapies for the management of acute lymphoblastic leukemia as presented at the ECAR 2021 meeting. First up, we have Baijal Shah of the H. Lee Moffitt Cancer Center and Research Institute in Florida, who will discuss results from the Phase 2 Zuma 3 study investigating brexacaptogene or Toulousel in adults with relapsed or refractory ALL. You know, with regards to unmet needs, I think there are still several. Um, the first major unmet need is what we do about for what we do for relapse, meaning how do we prevent relapse and how do we manage relapse? And so those are two very big, broad questions, but they're very relevant for adult patients with ALL. If you look at the SEER data, we're still showing um, only about 38% of adult patients, so this is those over the age of 20, uh, as a whole, I mean, as a population, uh, are, are, are showing extended survival. And, and again, that's largely driven by relapse. We are starting to integrate novel agents into our frontline protocols. We're waiting on the readout from ECOG 1910, which is the blinatumumab plus multi-agent chemoimmunotherapy. We are still accruing to a frontline trial with inatuzumab and multi-agent uh, chemotherapy. And I think we're also trying to understand in elderly patients where aggressive chemo may not be an option how we can better use inatuzumab and blinatumab in, in those groups. And so there is a frontline trial now of inatuzumab followed by blinatumab consolidation for this group. So we're in the process in 2021 of really integrating these very effective relapse agents into the frontline setting, but with the principal goal of preventing those relapse and changing that, that benchmark that I just described. I think the next question is, is, is also extremely relevant. How do we manage those relapses? And this is going to become even more important as we integrate these novel agents into our frontline protocols. So what do we do next? So now we've given Blina and Inatuzumab in a frontline um, regimen what do we have left to manage disease, particularly if those antigens CD19 or CD22 are still present? And I do think CAR-T fills a very, very important gap here. So for patients who are refractory, for patients who relapse with these therapies, particularly if the relapses are early, we need to be able to move them to highly effective therapies. CAR-T cell therapy is we presented um, at ASCO with the Zuma 2 data and also now published in Blood and the Lancet, is showing very high response rates and those response rates do appear to be durable. A fundamental question is what do you do with that response? And this relates, I think, to another major unmet medical need, which is, sorry, um, this relates to another major unresolved question in ALL. What is the role of transplant? And how do we think critically about avoiding 
allogeneic transplant. And I know that's a loaded sort of statement. I'm not suggesting that we move away from from allogeneic bone marrow transplant. I think it's it's a it's necessary for many patients. But I think we have to acknowledge in that same breath that transplant carries with it considerable considerable morbidity and mortality. And that morbidity in some cases may be lifelong when we talk about chronic graft versus host. And it's and it's not a small thing. You know, when we project out five years from the transplant, we're stuck, right, at around, you know, 60, 65% long-term survival. And that's assuming that we delivered the transplant as consolidation in the first remission setting and assuming that we went in without any detectable minimal residual disease and assuming that we're doing a perfect transplant, meaning in terms of how well we've matched it, ideally a sibling match. And that's assuming, you know, that, uh, you know, the transplant as a whole was well tolerated. So, you know, so I'm sorry, well tolerated in the sense that the, the patient is young. And so when we start adding additional variables, right, comorbidities, age, presence of uh, MRD going into the transplant, poorly matched donors, you know, so on and so on, we quickly come to a wall, right? Now our benefit is not going to be that high. If we talk about applying this in the relapse refractory setting, we also run into a similar wall. And so we have to start finding creative ways to figure out how to get past this transplant crutch. Um, and I'm hopeful that CAR-T will facilitate that. Now, hopeful is a very important and very key word here. We don't have data. We don't. Um, we have some attempts to try and answer that question, whether that be landmark analyses, whether that be censoring for transplant to, to, to gauge whether there's an impact on, on durability of remission. Um, but these analyses are far from perfect. And I think ultimately we're going to have to formally ask the question, uh, you know, very specifically, does transplant benefit patients who achieve a remission from CAR T cell immunotherapy in the relapse refractory setting? And we're also going to have to ask even harder questions. Is that something we pursue in a patient who's already had a prior allogeneic stem cell transplant? So lots of things to, to kind of sink, sink, um, sink one's teeth into, but that would be a very quick and dirty summary of, of, of how, I, how I perceive unresolved or unmet needs right now for adults with AML. Next, Daniel Lee from the University of Virginia is going to talk on long-term results of the Phase 1 Zuma 4 trial exploring brexacatogenal solution in pediatric and adolescent patients with relapsed or refractory B-cell ALL. We treated 24 children and adolescents with refractory B-cell leukemia um, with KTE X19, and we presented our 36-month uh, um, median follow-up data at EHA this year. Um, about 25% of our patients had a prior transplant before receiving CAR T-cell therapy, and that's important to know because they're heavily pretreated patients. Um, overall, our toxicity rates were very um, in line with, with uh, the other CD19 CAR uh, products um, and were quite manageable. There were no deaths on the study related to these toxicities. 
um, and our uh, CR and CRI rate was about 67% um, with 75% uh, of all treated patients achieving an MRD negativity. Um, and it, you know, one question that comes up, um, what do we oftentimes is what do we do after uh, the CAR T cell? And, and, you know, we, the study here was agnostic and did not um, dictate uh, the required uh, post-treatment or not. Um, however, 87% of the patients who responded in our study did end up going to a, uh, a transplant after receiving CAR T-cell therapy. Um, importantly, the take-home here is that not only is KTE X19 um, a safe product uh, for highly relapsed and refractory children and adolescents with leukemia, but the median overall survival at the recommended phase two dose of 1 million CAR T cells per kilogram was not reached with about 87% of the patients alive at 24 months that were treated at, that, at the recommended phase two dose. So I think that this data is really exciting um, and um, uh, is consistent with a lot of the other CD19 CAR data uh, that is out there. Um, the advantages here, aside from the, the, the great long-term follow-up, is that um, the products were delivered to the patients um, on an average of 17 days um, from the time that they were apheresed. So they were delivered to the site an average of 17 days from the time that they were collected. Um, and that's really quite rapid and, and of incredible importance uh, for this patient population uh, with highly refractory disease. So I, currently uh, KTEX19 ZUMA4 study is enrolling in the phase two. Um, and we actually have expanded enrollment to include those with Burkitt's leukemia lymphoma, as well as uh, B-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphomas. Now we're going to hear from Nicholas Short of the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Texas. And he's going to give an update on the results of a phase two trial investigating the use of blinatumumab plus panatinib for the treatment of Philadelphia chromosome positive ALL. Yeah, so this is a study um, evaluating a chemotherapy-free regimen of blinatumumab in combination with panatinib. Uh, in patients with pH positive ALL. And so we are enrolling patient, any adult patient with either newly diagnosed or relapsed refractory um, ALL. Uh, there's a lot of interest in these chemotherapy-free regimens in this disease. Um, obviously, panatinib is a very potent TKI. Blinitumab is very effective in the relapsed refractory setting. And there's some good in, uh, early data for disatinib and blinitumab in newly diagnosed AML. And so that was kind of the rationale for combining these, uh, particularly with the ability for panatinib to uh, target and treat uh, T3 or uh, being active against T3N5I mutations, uh, which we know cause resistance to other types of TKIs. So uh, in this study, we give patients uh, five cycles of blinatumab in combination with panatinib. Uh, the panatinib is initially started at 30 milligrams daily and then decreased to 15 milligrams once a patient uh, achieve a complete molecular response. Uh, those are given in combination, again, for the five cycles, and then patients receive five uh, years of panatinib uh, maintenance uh, at 15 milligrams daily. Uh, they also receive 12 doses of intrathecal chemotherapy. Uh, and so far, we've treated 35 patients uh, overall, uh, 20 in the frontline setting, uh, 10 relapsed refractory, and then we also included patients uh, with uh, CML and lymphoid blast phase because these behave similarly to pH-positive ALL. 
And so overall, the response, uh, the, the, I think the data have been very encouraging. Uh, all but one patient have responded uh, to the regimen. Uh, it was one patient with uh, multiply relapsed refractory disease. Um, so among the frontline cohort of 20 patients, all of them um, achieved a remission, 85% of which achieved a complete molecular response. In the relapsed refractory setting, 89% achieved a response, and of the among the responders, 88% uh, achieved a complete molecular response. And so, in the frontline setting, these these uh, responses translated to a two-year estimated overall survival of 93%. Notably, only one patient died. This is a patient uh, who died actually in remission. So there have been no relapses in the frontline setting, and also no patients have gone on uh, have uh, undergone stem cell transplant. Uh, in the relapsed refractory setting, the two-year event-free survival is 41%, two-year overall survival 53%. Um, and overall toxicity is as expected with both drugs. Uh, no patients had to stop therapy due to blenitumab. There were two patients who had to, um, who came off study due to, one due to stroke, one due to development of a DVT. Uh, but overall, these we believe these data are very encouraging, uh, particularly in the frontline setting where we had 100% response rate, 85% complete molecular uh, remission rate, uh, no patients relapsing, and none of whom were transplanted. So overall, um, I think that this potentially represents a very promising chemotherapy-free and transplant-sparing regimen uh, for patients with pH-positive ALL. Next, Nicholas is going to talk us through the potential role of venetoclax plus planatinib as a treatment regimen for patients with relapsed or refractory Philadelphia chromosome-positive ALL. We uh, conducted this phase one, two study of panatinib plus venetoclax um, based on some preclinical data suggesting um, some strong synergy between uh, panatinib and venetoclax um, in patients specifically with pH positive uh, ALL. This is thought in part due to um, the ability of uh, panatinib to um, uh, prevent the upregulation of MCL1, which is a known uh, resistance mechanism to venetoclax. And we chose panatinib because this is the most potent TKI that we have available currently um, for pH positive ALL. So in the phase one uh, study, we evaluated various dose levels of venetoclax, specifically 400 milligrams and 800 milligrams. Um, we did not have any um, dose limiting toxicities and ultimately 800 milligram daily dosing of venetoclax uh, was found in the phase one portion of the study to be the recommended phase two dose, which we're now um, evaluating. We've treated uh, nine patients to date. So three patients with the 400 milligrams of venetoclax, a six with the 800 milligram daily dose of venetoclax. Overall, in the entire cohort, uh, responses uh, we uh, in relapsed patients with relapsed refractory uh, pH positive ALL uh, response rate was uh, 56% um, with uh, with 44% of patients overall achieving a complete molecular response. And it's important to note that these are very were very heavily pretreated patients. Um, the majority of whom who had had prior panatinib, majority had had prior belinitumumab, and majority have had prior transplant. So we were encouraged by these response rates, um, in, in this, particularly in light of the very uh, heavily pretreated uh, population, including, including with uh, prior panatinib exposure. You know, although the numbers are limited, when we look at the um, responses between the 400 milligram and the 800 milligram daily dose of venetoclax, we didn't have any formal responses with the 400 milligram 
milligram daily dose, although there were only three patients. Uh, among the six patients treated with 800 milligrams, uh, all but one responded. So it's an 83% uh, you know, response rate in the 800 milligram daily dose. So there may be a dose dependent effect of the venetoclax um, uh, as well. Overall, the estimated one-year survival was 63%, uh, and no relapses have occurred to date. And, you know, although the follow-up is still relatively short, uh, you know, the six-month relapse-free survival is 100%. And, you know, when you look at the data from single-agent uh, panatinib, you know, one-year progression-free survival uh, is less than 10%. So, uh, we, it looks so far that these um, these uh, uh, responses are likely more uh, deeper and more durable than you see with uh, panatinib as a single agent in the relapse refractory setting. Uh, and I think that this um, uh, suggests an, a synergistic benefit of the addition of venetoclax. And so now this study uh, continues to accrue patients. Uh, it's enrolling into the phase two portion of the study uh, where we're using the 800 milligram daily dose uh, of venetoclax in combination uh, with panatinib in this setting. Finally, we have Robin Foa from the Sapienza University of Rome in Italy, who's going to share an update on the Jemima Lau 2116 trial of disatinib and blinitumumab for the treatment of newly diagnosed Philadelphia chromosome positive ALL. Important to underline up front that this protocol was for all adults, meaning that it was from patients for patients uh, with 18 years of age upwards, with no up age limit. And in fact, in a study, there were very elderly patients that were recruited. So this study was based on uh, an extension of the philosophy that the Jumema corporate study group in Italy has had for many years, is that of using an induction only a TKI, so tyrosine kinase inhibitor plus steroid and no systemic chemo. So this started very many years ago. This, this philosophy we adopted more than 15 years ago. In fact, the first paper was published in Blood, and it was published, uh, in, if I remember well, in 2007. So that's 14 years ago. So the study started earlier. So it's more than well over 15 years. And the idea came, uh, uh, obviously, from CML, where you control the patient with a TKI loan. So what we said, why don't we consider doing this in the Philadelphia positive ALL patients too? And we started with the elderly. So the first study with the matching was for patients above the age of 60 with no up age limit. And in fact, the oldest patient was 89. And all patients responded and all went into remission, which was very rewarding, particularly for the elderly, because in the older days, for the elderly patients, uh, we didn't have anything to offer. Um, many even got only palliative treatment because there was very little to offer. So that was the start of a long story, and we, we went on over the years using second-generation inhibitors, uh, namely desatinib, then we went to ponatinib, so a number of studies, and they're more or less all published. So this last study, which is the ALBA protocol, we added a further important step, which uh, is the consolidation. So it's induction with desatinib uh, and steroids, but then the consolidation is for all patients in respect to the response obtained with dazatinib, they all get uh, immunotherapy with a monoclonal antibody blinatumumab by specific. So it's a form of immunotherapy because the antibody, as you know, um, targets uh, the CD19, which is present on leukemic uh, BALL cells. But the, the 
therapeutic effect is mediated by the CD3 component. So it targets the second antigen, target the CD3. So it's, an, it, it's activating the host immune system of the patient itself. So CD3 itself. So it's a form of immunotherapy. So it was induction and consolidation without any systemic chemo. So the two key points were, were and have always been, that you have to identify the Philadelphia chromoposite in all patients rapidly in the one week of the preface. And the second is that you have to give uh, CNS prophylaxis. So the only chemotherapy they get is in uh, cerebrospinal fluid. So the data of this study were published in the New England Journal last uh, um, uh, fall, and it was very rewarding. Uh, all patients went into remission, and we obtained uh, at the primary endpoint, which is after two cycles of blinatumumab, we obtained 60% of molecular responses, which increased after more cycles of blinatumumab to about 80%. Now, what's happening at DHA is that Sabina Chiaretti has presented the update of our study, and uh, uh, which is, uh, I must say, rather rewarding because the, the data continue to look very promising in terms of responses and of molecular responses. And uh, in fact, we have data that are projected at three years follow-up with the responses which remain very good and to give you the exact figures bit off by heart i never remember them but at uh, projection at three years we have 80 percent of overall survival and the disease-free survival is 71 percent so this is extremely good in patients and i must say that half of the patients so far have only received the tki so, so no chemotherapy and no transplant. Another proportion of patients have gone to transplant. What has emerged again and confirms and extends what we observed in uh, what we report in New England is a rate of molecular responses that is well over 80% and continues to be so over time. The other important point is MRD, key point. This we said, we reported it in uh, in, in the publication, and it continues to be the case over time. Uh, patients obtain a molecular response, virtually negative by quantity PCR, remain without events, particularly if they don't have additional genetic abnormalities at diagnosis. If you have a Nikaros Plus, uh, genetic profile I diagnosed, these patients do significantly less well. The update of the curve is 79% uh, of disease-free survival if you don't have any genetic abnormality at diagnosis, 55% if it's Icarus alone, and down to 41% if it's Icarus plus. So the genetic landscape at diagnosis is very important in order to actually define the, uh, uh, the prognosis of patients. So this is where we stand, and I think it's a very important uh, to underline. I should also, one final point is uh, that uh, the study was only uh, stopped at the end of the consolidation. That was a primary endpoint. After that, the patients were free, the centers were free to treat patients as they wanted, and they were collecting all the data. And so far, half of the patients have been transplanted. And what is important is that the transplant-related mortality is low. And that is most likely because they haven't had systemic chemotherapy. So this, I think, is a very important point that uh, leads us to, to probably change the strategy of the management for Philadelphia positive ALL, at least in adult life. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. We'd like to thank all of our speakers for taking the time to talk with us. For more podcasts and news and targeted therapies for ALL, visit VJHemoc.com and follow us on Twitter at VJHemoc. 
Be sure to subscribe to Video Human Podcasts, which are available on Spotify, Apple, and Podbean.